Welcome to Housewarming, a podcast about climate solutions in Chicago, Illinois, and beyond. I'm Sarah Burry. Where do we go when we die? Here at Housewarming Podcast, there is no answer to that. But we can talk about what happens to your body when you die. There's some debate about whether burial, where we pump chemicals into someone and then put them in a box and put them in the ground, or cremation, where we use natural gas to burn someone's body, has a higher carbon footprint. Representative Kelly Cassidy is looking to give you a third greener option, human composting. She joins me on the podcast today to talk about it. This interview was recorded about two weeks ago. The veto session is just before and just after Thanksgiving, but we are still looking forward to the lame duck session and the spring session. This episode has been edited for length and clarity. Let's get to it. Welcome to Housewarming. Today we have Representative Kelly Cassidy. Thanks for joining. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you definitely cover me and my neighbors in Rogers Park, but who else is in your district? Sure. So the 14th district runs from Foster Avenue on the south to the Evanston border on the north and from Clark or, or from the lake roughly to Clark or Ridge. It's kind of a zigzag on that side. So it's in the neighborhoods, Edgewater, Andersonville, Rogers Park, and West Ridge. Congratulations on your election. Thank you. Excited to get back to business. Awesome. Okay, so you were like, yes, I have environmental legislation. Tell us about it. (laughs) Sure. And actually, I have more of an answer to the rest of the question in terms of what other environmental stuff is likely to pop that we can talk about, too, if you want. What's got me super excited this year on the environmental front is something that we started working on last year after we saw a couple of states pass it, which is natural organic reduction or human composting, an alternative to high-carbon footprint post-death options. I was kind of stunned to learn the extent to which the funeral industry is an unmitigated environmental disaster. Like, it's one of those things you kind of know, right? Like, it's obvious that acres and acres and acres of land being turned into lawn, essentially, is obviously, you know, going to be an environmental hit. But didn't really think about what it meant for cremation, Let's talk about what human composting is to begin with, but also how is this going to impact people's Halloween decorations? It's really going to change the Halloween decoration landscape. Great. What is what is human composting? Really figure out how to build a giant compost. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I asked you this question before, you were like, "Well, actually, it's it's exactly what it sounds like." We just did an episode a few episodes ago about composting, and it was a block bins episode, and uh, this is a little different. Um, obviously, you're, you know, it, it's not you know, leaves and veggie scraps in the tumbler in your yard. What it is, though, is a chamber that is filled with organic material that helps to accelerate the decomposition process where the human body, a dead body, is placed. And after about 30 days, all of the tissues uh, have been broken down. And the final result is the equivalent of a Ford F-150 bed full of compost so rich that it would burn vegetables if you planted it directly in. It, it wow. has to be distributed. And so in the, in the funeral industry, in the natural organic production industry, most people don't take all of the byproduct. They give you an urn full of, of compost, and then there are partnerships that these uh, providers uh, enter into 
the one that was most fascinating to me in California and Oregon, they're working with the Forest Service to restore land that has been burned in the forest fires this year. So they're using these materials to help to accelerate the regeneration of those forests which is kind of an amazing side effect of, you know, you're not just going to fertilize a lemon tree in my honor, you're going to rebuild a forest with me. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. What initially got you excited about this concept? This one actually came to me from a constituent. Some of my best stuff is, you know, the, the amazing folks who live in these communities who are experts in a million different fields bringing me ideas. So a constituent came to a town hall last summer shared that I think at that point one state had done it, um, also shared that Maine had taken the additional step of allowing Viking funerals, which we're not really going there yet. Um, <laughs> and I agreed to start looking into it. So I reached out to the Colorado legislator that passed theirs, this is a friend of mine, and asked her what her experience was, sort of trying to get a sense of who's going to be opposed to this, how does it work. Introduced an initial bill working in concert with a fellow Rogers Park neighbor, Jen Walling, from the Illinois Environmental Council. The funeral industry immediately lost their minds and started flipping out on me. So we had to do a little, you know, we've, we've, been, we've been in talks for the better part of the year with them. But it was very much, you know, I, I, I served the 108-ish thousand residents of the 14th District. And when they have ideas, I chase them down. Jen was also just on an episode to explain the veto session and the lame duck session. So you're in good company. How big is the lobbyist contingency for funeral homes? Is this like something that could really stand in the way of the bill? In theory, yes. There's actually two different entities. The cemetery folks have their own association. And then the funeral directors themselves have, a, have an association as well. The cemetery folks are likely to remain opposed because that prevents them from selling land and pouring Roundup all over it and all of the things that they they do in the course of their business. The Funeral Directors Association, we're having more productive conversations with. It's a really traditional change-averse industry, as you might imagine. With them, it's really more a question of, of education and understanding that it is, it's about adding options, not removing options, making sure that there are choices folks. There's very limited choices. Apparently there's a green cemetery in the northern suburbs that I've not had an opportunity to go to where you can have a a burial without chemicals and without, you know, the concrete liners and all that kind of stuff. But it's incredibly limited and prohibitively expensive. This would be a more accessible option for folks. We spent time with them and went to, visited the, what they say is the alternative to cremation that's, that's more environmentally friendly. It's a process called alkaline hydrosis, and that is a water cremation. And so we visited one of the a handful of operators in the state. I think there's only maybe three of them in Grundy County and walked into a room with what appeared to be a giant Instapot in it. I <laughs> not. It was very um, fascinating. And that what they explained is in this process, which is more environmentally friendly than cremation because of the, the you know, exhaust, you're put in this chamber with two to 300 gallons of superheated water and some accelerants again, and it vibrates. There's motion involved to keep the water moving to keep the, the process going. And at the end, all that's left are bones and any surgical devices, right, metal pieces that people might have had. And the water goes into the wastewater system, which was the creepiest thing I heard of the whole experience. 
Not to mention, like, we don't have 200 gallons to waste every time somebody dies. I think they, they wanted us to join them there to see that we don't need to do human composting. And what I saw is that we really, really, really need to do human composting because of the impact of this one. You really hit me, like, where it hurts with the water stuff. Like, that is that is my main obsession with the environment. And, thing, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and so, like, the idea of, like, water use is insane. Yes. Yeah. The, the idea of human soup going down the drain at every any temperature is kind of creepy to me. Yeah. Not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, and people drink the water that is eventually released into the Mississippi down the line. So, yeah. also, it sounds like people don't get to take anything with them. No, there is. So, this is something I learned, again, this year. You know, this is... And let me just, as an aside, the coolest thing about this job is getting to take deep dives into really esoteric subjects and learning things you would never have learned before. <laughs> Even in traditional cremation, the the bones don't go anywhere. You're At the end of that process, the bones are still there. And they use a machine called a cremulator, which to me sounds like a Dr. Seuss machine, to tumble the bones into powder and, and then that gets added to the ashes. So this is, so people get that out of, after alkaline hydrosis, they get the, the, the bones. Now, and, and in natural organic reduction, the cremulator is involved as well. Nothing breaks down bone. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. So, so right now in Illinois, let's just talk about what the landscape is for this right now. You can pay to get buried in a cemetery during which they pump you full of chemicals and then, Put you in a nice outfit. We have a fancy box that has to be built out of hardwood that we can't spare. You know, put you in a, a, a hole in the ground that we can't spare, lined with concrete that we can't spare, topped with lawns and flowers that aren't necessarily helpful to our environment. So that's probably the biggest carbon footprint option. So there's already like this movement against golf courses because it's the lawn needs to be maintained lawn like the lawn that we have in golf courses and on our sh- on like in front of our homes is from England it's not native plants and so yeah. it needs to be watered it needs to be cut it just doesn't operate like native plants would and so add to that we're putting people in boxes underground and then putting lawn on top so you could you could get buried yep you could get cremated What's the problem with that? So the problem with that is, is simply the emissions associated with it. You know, it is, again, pumping black smoke into the sky. The power re- requirements involved in that to create that, the, the temp- high, high temperature fires that you need for it. Again, there's a box involved. Again, like there are, there are additional materials involved there. And so that's another relatively high footprint option. And then sometimes people bury those, too. So you still might have the lawn problem there. I had decided that I wanted some kind of green ending and had thought that it was possible to be planted um, in such a way that I would turn into a tree and, like, actually fertilize the soil. Do you Have you learned whether or not cremation actually fertilizes the soil, or is it just not helpful? Um, I mean... Ash in general, just as a, as a gardener, I will tell you, ash can be helpful to the soil. 
Okay. Right. But I, I don't know that it has any particular, like the, the amount of ash that you would provide to a tree. Mm. I, I don't know the extent to which that it's really significant to the tree, if you will. And again, it happens after you already had the high temperature fire and the, the right. emission. There, and there are some places that do these chambers where after you're cremated, you go into the, into the chamber to become a tree or, and, you know, there's, but it, it all is predicated on the traditional method. Okay. So you can get cremated and then whatever happens with you, or you can be buried. And those are our options right now. Or this water thing. Right. Right. Or this water thing. There, which, um, like if I hadn't witnessed it, I might've been sold on it being greener. <laughs> But it, it was it was disturbing. Not gonna lie, just kind of a creepy approach. I'm more concerned about water than almost anything else. So hearing the volume of water involved in that was really shocking. I love that you're also concerned about water more than anything else. It's it's my favorite thing. So um, so yeah, water is not a renewable resource in the way that we thought about it in the '90s. It's definitely yeah. possible to run out, and with climate migrants and things like that. Someone posted a a joke meme on something, some platform about how eventually Florida is going to turn blue because it's parts of it are going to disappear, which is, you know, sure. I can see why someone would make that joke, except I'm like, but all the people, they're not just going to drown. They're going to move up and change the political landscape somewhere else. And then I was a buzzkill and people stopped laughing, but... <laughs> Climate migrants are a real thing. And it's and real. Absolutely. And, and here in the Great Lakes region, you know, we are, we are probably the most attractive place to come. You know, out west, you've got battles over water rights raging already. So, you know, there, that's not necessarily a, a, a viable option for someone fleeing climate change at sea level. Right. Um, I think that the, we'll see the bulk of that here. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so what does the bill do? So the bill really very simply creates a regulatory framework to permit natural organic reduction as a as a post-death option for folks. And, you know, we regulate the funeral industry in the state, so there are multiple state agencies involved that we have to negotiate with in terms of the roles and, and, and who's, who's going to be in charge of what. You know, anybody who provides this service would either have to be working under a licensed funeral director or be a licensed funeral director themselves. So it addresses all of that professional licensure stuff as well as the procedural and regulatory pieces that are that are designed to protect public health. You know, without regulation of the funeral industry, you can bury me in my backyard. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. You're modeling this on a Colorado law. Is that right? So Colorado, California, Oregon, and I think Maine did it. We're, we're, we're aiming to be the fifth. Is Illinois different at all, or is it similar enough to just take most of that language? Yes and no. I mean, every state does their regulatory stuff differently, but it's all differently in the same variable, if that makes sense. Right? Okay. Like it's is it your Department of Public Health or is it your Department of Financial and Professional Regulation? Is it the banking industry? You know, the, the, there's there's only a set number of ways to regulate. So different agencies do it differently. But but we think that we're going to be able to model it. Um, basically, Colorado just created an alternate definition to cremation. 
to to allow for another option. And that's the that's the, the path we're looking at. Okay. So just to like get into the nitty gritty of it. So they take your body, they put some what did you call them to make it go faster? Natural accelerants. And so it's it's bacteria that you would find in, in your compost bin. But you know, anybody who's who's ever done backyard compost or has done it with any level of attention, you know, and probably the folks who listen to the bin discussion, um, there are additives you can put in if, for example, your compost is running too cold or if you've got too much wet stuff and need more dry stuff. Or, so it, these are all natural additives that exist, and they're, they're microorganisms and bacteria that, that help to accelerate the process. So those don't sound like they'd have much of a carbon footprint. No. So they put one body in a container with yes. these accelerants, and then how long does it take? It takes about 30 days for the full breakdown. There is zero DNA detectable in the final material. It is, it is completely broken down. That's an issue that came up a lot when folks were first hearing about this because, you know, if you found a fragment of bone in the ground or in your garden, you might think it's a crime scene. And so there, there was a lot of folks wanting to understand that a little bit more clearly. But there's no DNA, no bone fragments. It, it is really just incredibly rich dirt. So it becomes dirt, but you said we still need the cremulator to break down the bone. Yes. So at, at the end of that 30-day process, when everything has, has been decomposed, they, they then take the, the bones and any surgical devices have to be taken away as well, obviously, if you had a knee replacement or something like that or pins in, in your bones. So those get taken away and the bones go into this big food processor called a cremulator and, and they get powdered. They, they really become almost like talcum. They're so uh, fine, they're so broken down, so fine. And that gets mixed back in uh, into the, the, um, the compost and it's part of the final product. Okay, and then loved one can be given a part of this, and then the rest of it goes. It, it, it depends, and different different providers are doing it differently. The love, the, the family might want it all, right? Like I'm one of seven kids, so I could see you know seven bags of compost at seven homes to plant a tree for our mom, you know. But you know, so so that's kind of a thing that goes on between the funeral director and the, and the client. But in the case of the, the operator we're working most close, closely with in California, they give a symbolic amount, however much the, the family wants. And they've entered into some partnerships with, with folks who are working to restore the soil post uh, after all the forest fires that they experienced in California. And so the remainder is, is going into uh, helping to bring back those forests more quickly, which like, to me, sounds like a bonus. Um, it doesn't sound like a, you know, here's what we're going to do with the rest. We're just going to get rid of it. It's, it's like it actually expands on my desire to be part of the solution even after death. So, so that's one option. I've heard of other operators that partner with traditional cemeteries, and they use it to lessen their chemical use in maintaining the grounds. That's another option. So there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of opportunities there for creative approaches. Okay, so I feel like the people who watch CSI are going to be really disappointed that there is no DNA left uh, no, right. in the dirt. That was one of the first 
bits of pushback we got, in particular from the cemetery folks, because they're the ones most under scrutiny for that kind of thing. You know, anybody who lived here during the Baroque cemetery situation where people were just being dumped into unmarked graves and bones were sticking out and things like that, they're, they're particularly sensitive to that. So they were very, very concerned that, you know, like there'd be a femur sticking out of my tomato bed or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> people are kind of squeamish about using, like, I have two bunnies and their poop is, and their litter is such that you can just put it directly on your garden. But then they're yeah, like, put oh. Put on your list if you have extra. I have so much extra. Stuff. So much. I love that. Bring it on. I, yeah, my garden would be delighted to have some bunny poop. I'm going to take you up on that. Some states do limit what you can use the, the compost for. I think it's Colorado that has the prohibition on food or on commercial food. You can't really prohibit what people do in their own yard, but it, it cannot be used in any commercial food farming operation, which is really not about science so much as people's feeling. Yeah, um, it's the you it's factor. Like if, that's, if that's what folks want, that we'll do that, but I don't know that it's necessary. You know, I don't. I also don't imagine the Farm Bureau coming to you know the the natural organic reduction operators and asking for a deal on fertilizer either. So, you know, I think that it's it's really more about the ick factor than any reality based concerns that it could happen. Yeah. In some discussions I've had about compost, there's some hope that the need for compost is going to increase. Because right now it's it's really a, a buyer's market for compost because there's a lot more compost than there is need for it. How do you see that playing out? Um, I think because this doesn't necessarily enter into a commercial operation, it's probably separate. You know, again, like looking at the ways Earthworks is using it in California, I think it's Earthworks is the name of her group, where they're they're just working with the Forest Service and the compost is going into the Forest Service. There's no commercial transaction involved. They're not selling it. They, they certainly wouldn't have the opportunity to sell the, my remaining compost on a commercial market. So I, I don't know that it would have a huge impact in that regard. Do you think that as, you know, like maybe as you're looking at, you know, some of those partnerships with existing cemeteries, you know, they're making a choice to do this instead of purchasing chemicals or commercial compost. So maybe a tangential connection there. Yeah, runoff from from chemicals on land is a pretty big problem for the water I love this idea. I'm I'm going to sign up. Uh so how how scalable is it? Like this this box that or the container that they compost people in has to be a fair size. Human sized. Human sized, right? So so how let's can we talk about scalability? Yeah. Yeah. So that part of that is that need to be able to accelerate, right? To be able to have it work more quickly than the natural process would. So, so, you know, getting it down to that 30 day window has helped with that. Again, the operator that I've spoken to in California is currently, she started out with, I think three or four chambers and she's already like quadrupled her, her capacity. The structural needs, once you get going are, are kind of minimal. You know, it's not as if with like the alkaline hydrosis process, you need this very complex, machinery with connections to the sewage system and power connections and all of that and that's not the case with these once they're doing their thing they're doing their thing and so it's really only limited by your capacity to buy the chambers you know and when i was talking to the the alkaline hydrosis guy his one setup 
is about, I think he said it was like $350,000 for one of those. So that really isn't scalable. And he's even said as much, you know, that, that it's very difficult for folks performing this service to scale because it requires, you know, I mean, he's got a completely separate facility for it from his crematorium because they operate in totally different ways. So I think that this is actually a lot more scalable than some of the current processes. So did you, have you visited a place where they do this or seen pictures uh, of yeah, it? We, were t- we talked about it this summer about going out there, um, but we, we, we have not. Okay. Do you have an idea of, is it like a factory setting? Like a warehouse. Well, like a warehouse. That's fascinating. I wonder if they have any additional security measures because it's people's bodies. I'm sure they do. I mean, you, you, largely because you just want people to feel safe giving you the body of their loved one. Yeah, I, I, I recall odd aside but when my dad died Florida he was to be cremated and he died in hurricane season and my sister I was already back home my sister got a call from the crematorium asking her to pick up our dad because they were evacuating because the hurricane was coming and it was only a few days after we had sent him and they had told us it would be a couple weeks and and she had to ask in very Cassidy fashion is he done yet? (laughs) <laughs> like, am I picking up his body or his ashes? So, uh, you know, they, they do have to have some plan, contingency plans and security to make sure people are, are comfortable and feel safe. But I, I don't know that there's any huge security risk, per se, to the facility. Sorry for your loss, but that is a valid question. What form am I, I picking him up in? Is my car going to be enough or do I need a truck? Like, what's happening here? It's totally a valid question. Is this coming in the spring? When when are you going to introduce the bill? Okay. Yeah. So the bill, I, I did introduce a version of it already um, this year, but we'll be we're rewriting it and reintroducing it in the spring. And uh, in fact, next week we'll be meeting with the various departments who are responsible for oversight of the funeral industry to get them all in the same room at the same time and make somebody choose who's going to be in charge of this one, so that uh, that we can move forward uh, efficiently in January after we're sworn in. Are you finding a lot of buy-in or other representatives being like, this is a great idea, or are they like, really? A little bit of everything. I mean, the Green Caucus is all in. I can't remember how many co-sponsors I got. I got a ton of co-sponsors when I, when I walked it around the floor. I did have a, a fair number of, of colleagues who, um, <laughs> who, who shared, you know, Kelly, you pretty regularly bring me bills that I have to spend a minute figuring out how I'm going to explain to my pastor, but this one takes the cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I love that you have the, the sort of reputation of I'm going to do what needs to be done and we're going to figure a way into this and people sort of expect that from you. That's pretty great. It is pretty fun. It's it's a pretty fun role to play uh, in the general assembly, no doubt. I'm very lucky. I represent a district that, that doesn't just expect this, they demand it. So if there's something big to take on, I'm here to do it. Amazing. So so you have sponsors. It's going to be reintroduced in the spring. And you've been working with one of the two industries that would be really impacted by it. Do you think it has a good chance? I do. I do. I think that, um, you know, it's really one of those things that the immediate reaction is kind of like, oh, this is weird. I don't, I don't want to think about it. And as soon as people start to hear more about it, they're like, oh, okay, fine. So I kind of feel like that's how this is going to come over. It's going to be rough for a few weeks, and then everybody's just like, whatever, it's fine, let's go. 
once they, they come to understand that it's really not as weird as it sounds. And, you know, we have this very weird, you know, we don't talk about death well. People get all bootsy and freaked out and they don't want to think about their own death. And, and you know, so getting over those hurdles, um, getting, getting past that, getting past the X factor, getting past the this is the way we've always done things, those are the, those are the hurdles. Um, and I think they're all easily surmountable. Do you have an idea of how long it took other states to get this up and running so that people can start, you know, paying ahead to have this done when they die? You know, I haven't asked specifically, you know, other than like, what does it take to get going? This person that we're working with out of California has been opening new facilities regularly. California just came online last year. So I think it can be a pretty quick turnaround especially if you're either A, already a funeral director or B, already engaged in, a, in partnership with one because I'm guessing the, the professional licensure is the biggest piece. So California and Colorado seem like they'd have pretty big markets for this. It's kind of a self-selecting service. You need to care about the environment to want to do something like this. And also there is there is this attachment to the idea of being able to go visit someone after they've died. But, you know, you can plant a tree and put that, that compost in, so that's... Absolutely. Like, I think that's the, the, the piece for me. You know, like, I had been contemplating cremation. You know, I just assumed that was what was going to... Because I knew I didn't want to be buried. Not a Viking funeral? And I, I mean, I don't know. That's a wonderful <laughs> idea. But, you know, at the same time, I did have that, like... My parents don't have graves. I don't go visit them anywhere. But in, as, a, as a Jew, I converted to Judaism. That's a huge thing. They, you know, visiting the grave, leaving a stone, being there on the art site, all of that. So I've always had sort of this two minds idea around after, after my death. You know, and if I were scattered on the island I grew up on, well, if you're on the island, you're with me. You know? Mm-hmm. But... This idea of being an entire forest just doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I love that. You know, I'm sure there's you're going to talk about it in your newsletters, but I will let people know through our social media that when this starts rolling and what they can do to help. On that note, though, you you uh, mentioned earlier you'd be willing to talk about some other environmental legislation you see coming. What do you what's yeah. what's coming down the pipe? So a couple things that, that we're hearing um, potentially for veto or lame duck. Um, one relates to a cleanup needed um, to CJA, the Clean Energy, Energy Jobs Act, um, where we, I, I, I don't know what the, the right verb is, but we didn't set it up so that local governments couldn't prevent folks from, from engaging in, in sustainable energy. And, but what we saw in the immediate aftermath is, is counties putting uh, ordinances in place, preventing farms from leasing their land to the wind based on you know, some really wild conspiracy theories about what windmills do and stuff. Um, so we will be uh, cleaning that up so that uh, we can continue to be one of the leaders in wind generation in, in the country so that we, are, we don't have folks standing in the way of progress there. And it's fascinating because these are all very Republican counties that are all about staying out of people's business and letting people use their land in the way they want to, and unless it's in a way they don't like. Right. So, and I originally heard from a fourth or fifth generation family farmer. She 
She's doing everything she can to stay on the family land, not lease it out. She wants to continue to, to work her land. And she saw windmills as the path to being able to do that, to continue to farm, but to be able to sustain her family on that farm. And her county pushed through a last-minute ordinance that prevented it, you know, which, like, if they were thinking this through, they really don't want that to happen, right? Like, that's not great policy. You don't want all of our farms consolidated into, you know, corporate hands. You want that family farm to continue. And, and taking away the methods by which they can is just unspeakably cruel. So that's one. Jen talked um, a little bit about that when she was on the pod. Yeah, that's that's a... Yeah. She's just trying to keep her farm going. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing, the first steps towards exploring offshore wind for for Illinois. I think there's a small pilot project, a pilot program uh, contemplated, but also just the regulatory framework that would need to happen if we were to allow it. That's one that doesn't have universal support in the Green Caucus or the environmental movement generally. But again, it's it's a significant step towards keeping Illinois status uh, with regard to the, the um, sustainable energy industry in Illinois. Would that be in Lake Michigan or in other? Yeah, mm. yeah it would be Lake Michigan. And as it's been explained to me, and, and there's a, a, a really cool coalition of folks involved, it's Robin Gable and Marcus Evans, and so folks from both ends of the lakefront. And, and it's, you know, contemplating, they're way far out, like past the cribs. You know, you can barely see the water cribs. From the lakefront, you know, you have to know what they are to, to even realize what they are. And so from a visual standpoint, I think a lot of folks are reacting to that. They don't want the horizon littered. You really won't be able to see them. There's uh, concerns that have also been raised, in particular by folks who's, who are in the environmental movement because of birds, out of a concern of danger to birds. And I've seen multiple studies refuting that claim. That it, that it is dangerous to birds. That said, I'm very sympathetic to birds, so it's one I, I, I wrestle with. And then, you know, folks who just don't believe we should be doing anything in the water, period, we have to protect the water. So those are sort of the arguments within our, our own family over it. it we're, there's not universal accord among the, the Green Caucus or the environmental movement writ large. You think that's going to come up in the lame duck session or in the spring session? Um, it sounds like they're trying to do it in veto session. Oh, in veto session. Or I mean, they're kind of interchangeable, but I don't know for sure. It seems like that would be hard to get all the votes for veto session. You would think. Someone was talking about bringing up a bill, speaking of birds, to to turn off lights, basically. So there's like so the... A, a dark skies initiative. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, you know, that's something I've been asking about for a while and trying to figure out how to do... It's a little harder to do on a statewide level. I would love to see the city and, and other cities do it, um, you know, back to that concept of scalability to figure out what works. But, yeah, I, I, I actually I made a request a couple of years ago to try to, to get some legislation around it, and, and it's challenging. And then you get into issues of home rule. You know, we can't really tell home rule communities to turn off the lights. That's something that they have to choose to do, or we have to get 71 votes to override home rule. So it becomes it becomes a little more challenging to do it at the state level. Okay, and for listeners, home rule is the ability to self determine if you have a population over a certain amount. Do you know the the, the population number off the top of your head? I don't. I could I could make it up. Okay. <laughs> 
But like Chicago or Springfield or like bigger cities that have yeah. more population. Yeah, reasonably sized cities and, and counties have some home rule as, as well. I can't remember if it's 250 or 500,000 or neither. <laughs> That's okay. That's, it's easy enough to look up. It's a very specific area of law that, like, there's literally always one guy on staff who is, is the expert on home rule because it's so esoteric. It's like being, you know, the election lawyer in the room. You know, you've got, you've got the guy with the, with the highly specialized knowledge. So is the adjustment to CJA to prevent home rule? It probably will need to override home rule. But again, that goes down to that parliamentarian, whether, whether it does or not. Sometimes there are variables. There's sort of toggle switches. So depending on what you're changing, it may or may not impact home rule. I've not been involved in the negotiation of that bill, so I'm not sure on that front. Okay. And do you see anything coming in the spring in the, the next big session other than human composting? Oh, I think we'll see a lot. I mean, we've got so many new progressive members coming in. We're going to have, have their ideas. I think we're going to see, see a good bit um, of stuff in, in, in this wheelhouse. And stuff that, we haven't, that we've been trying to get done that we haven't gotten done, like banning you know, polystyrene, things like that, that have kind of languished over the years while we've had the big stuff that we've had to focus on. So I, I think we'll probably see a, a fair number of interesting initiatives come out. Mylar balloons was one that didn't move last year that, that folks were feeling strongly about because, you know, balloon releases generally are problematic. Mylar balloon releases have knocked out power grids. So that's one that folks are talking about that's more complicated than it would appear to be on the surface um, because there are cultural issues around that that folks don't want to eliminate that option for folks. Everything on the surface looks super easy, and then you kind of dig in and find ways that things can go sideways. Okay, yeah. I know that there's some discussion about, Jen talked about uh, coal ash cleanup in Waukegan. Which, finally, that's been languishing for a while. We've got, well, we've got Waukegan, and we've got a lot of central Illinois facilities as well that that are impacted. Yeah. Okay. And then, I mean, the the lead service line process is going so slowly, even though the law passed that they need to be replaced. I mean, we've got the money now, but part of it was waiting for that federal money that was promised to be able to allow it to get underway. So we hopefully we won't need to come up with additional state money because it's going to be a tough year budget-wise. But now that, that the federal money has been flowing, hopefully that can get picked up on. Okay, great. That's a great scoop. How can people support your efforts with the human composting or what's the best way to talk to you about whether or not they support these other bills coming in? So I try to be as findable as I can possibly be. So I'm on all the socials. I'm on Twitter and Insta and and Facebook and, well, as long as Twitter lasts anyway. (laughs) Um, And we've got a full-time service office at repcassidy at gmail.com or 773-784-2002. We love to get folks involved. We love to engage folks in the work of passing our bills. So for anyone who's interested in learning more, we're eager to talk to you. Thank you for joining. It's been great to have you on. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was our last interview of the season. We will start up again next year, but in the meantime, If you didn't start with us in season one, episode one, now's a great time to go back and listen to those episodes about a variety of topics ranging from lead pipes to public transportation and so much more. 
You can find Housewarming Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and also on Facebook and Twitter. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.